Let's pray together. God, it is very good to say that you are stronger. It's very good to come back to the truth that it is written and you are Lord of all. So we come into this time in your word expectant because you are very good to us and you want to show us your way to live our lives. So we say that you are Lord over our lives, even the parts that we don't want to give over to you. We are here this morning with our hands open and saying, God, take it. You're better. You are all. We don't need anything else. Father, we love you and we are so thankful. And all God's people said, amen. amen. All right. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. There we go. Well, last week, James uh, led the way in being really vulnerable. And so being the new guy, right, I thought I would follow suit. So, Drew, go ahead and put that picture up there. Uh, there you go. The most vulnerable thing I could possibly do is show you a picture of me in eighth grade. This is me as a vulnerable, awkward 13-year-old kid with a paisley shirt. I don't know what's going on with that shirt. I think they had a wallpaper sale somewhere and like there's a little, little extra. That extra top button is pretty styling. I don't know what that's about. I show you that picture not just because it's awkward, although it absolutely is, um, but I think it sets the tone for an equally awkward story. Eighth grade was weird for me, as it is for most of us, um, but something happened in eighth grade that showed me a lot about my identity. I was sitting in the far northwest classroom on the third floor of the old North Canton Middle School on Charlotte Street. It was probably early fall, and it was, it was warm, you know, and nothing could prepare me for what I was about to do. I was about to take a career assessment test as a 13-year-old. This test was nobly designed to give all of us pimply, prepubescent 13-year-olds, awkward though we were, a sense of vocational momentum. To say, man, if we could identify something in your life, this could be a target, something for you to head toward. Nobly designed. I appreciate the effort. I really do. I honor the heart and the intention behind it. But when you're 13 years old, vocational direction is the last thing that you're trying to think through. Your world is complete chaos. Nothing makes sense. There is zero consistency. Everything turns upside down. And so while I appreciate the effort to give direction to those young, fragile, impressionable minds, I remember my friends and I looking at each other, kind of silently saying, like, are they serious? All I want to figure out is how to keep my voice from cracking in front of girls. But that's not the best part. The best part of this whole scenario was my results when I took the test. You want to hear what they were? My results, after I took the test, I should be one of two things. Here you go. I was either supposed to be a farmer or a forest ranger. <laughs> now, why do you laugh? Those are noble pursuits, right? 
Right. Why is that such a funny story, right? Because I went to try and reverse engineer the test. And I'm like, how in the world did they come up with those answers? Nothing about people, you know, nothing about teaching, nothing about outward facing at all, just me and Henry David Thoreau gallivanting and being Walden off in, off in the woods somewhere. And I thought like, well, okay, yeah, I like to spend time outside and I like to do stuff with my hands, so maybe, but I couldn't shake the feeling that something was, was missed in that test, right? Well, why is that such a funny story? Besides the hilarity of trying to impart vocational direction on 13-year-olds, which is noble, I think it's funny because that assessment had absolutely nothing to do with who I am or who I was becoming. Our souls crave identity, not assignment. In vocational life as in spiritual life, before we know what we're supposed to do, we need to know who we are. Put simply, identity precedes activity. Last week, we started off our summer sermon series called Saturate, and if you missed week one, you've got to go back and listen online. Um, If you were here last week, you know why. Uh, James set the tone beautifully for where we're going to be going, namely this, that all of us in this room live in this painfully awkward in-between place called earth. We have this deep feeling that somehow life is not, not how it was supposed to be. We watch the news and we see racism, injustice, manipulation, marginalization, and sin, and we grow increasingly heartsick for heaven. We say, Father, let your kingdom come, and it seems so far off. We are stuck. That sense of stuckness just characterizes our lives here. We are stuck profoundly. And when we face with that feeling, we've got four options. One, fortification. That's to hide and kind of play it safe in our little Christian bunker. Or two, domination. We can win arguments and try and arm wrestle people into the kingdom. Three, accommodation, give in because the pressure is too great. Or fourth, which I think is the way of discipleship, is engaging, thoughtfully, prayerfully living our lives in the context of community with grace and truth. So I want to pick up where James left off. Yes, we are stuck and we feel it in our souls, but we are also sent. Part of our identity is stuck people who are sent But unlike my eighth grade career assessment test, we aren't just sent off on some nameless, anonymous mission somewhere. We are sent somewhere because of our identity. As a gospel-oriented people, empowered activity for Christ rests on abiding intimacy with Christ. So join me in John chapter 20. John chapter 20, and just kind of we'll start in verse 1 after a bit, but I want to set the tone. Because John 20 happens at a really crucial point in in the history of the Gospels and in Jesus' life. So I want to take a quick look over the rearview mirror and look back, and I'm going to highlight the last couple of chapters. Here's John 20. It's Holy Week, Passover. Jerusalem is packed. Travelers from all over are making their pilgrimages. The inns are full. The markets are busy. Families shuffle through the streets and alleys of Jerusalem trying to connect with friends and relatives. There's not a quiet corner in the city. Jesus is in the final days of his life. And although the disciples 
still don't quite have a full picture of what's going on. They've gathered together in an upper room, a borrowed room, a guest room that Peter and John had secured that morning from pretty much a complete stranger. It's evening, the room is dusty, and the disciples are dirty from traveling, so water is brought in with a basin and a washcloth. And in an act of appalling humility, Jesus strips down to a towel and then takes a towel and washes his disciples' dirty, ugly, gross man feet. And then the meal begins. Food is served, and he teaches about vines and branches, about the kingdom, about bread and wine, and he prays over men who, over the last three years, have moved from complete strangers to friends, and from friends to brothers. Half numb to what's about to happen, they celebrate their last meal together. We call it the Last Supper. Somewhere, Judas slips away unnoticed. The meal is over. The scene shifts from an upper room to outside, a valley, a steep valley with gravel on, on between their toes, underneath their feet. After about an hour or so, the disciples and Jesus stop in a small olive grove, a place that Jesus frequently went to pray and to be alone. Feeling the weight of what's ahead of him, Jesus prays to his father. The disciples fall asleep. Torches appear from behind the trees. Judas kisses Jesus. And things start to unravel really quickly. Soldiers arrest Jesus and pull him away. In a blur of confusion, 12 stunned men scatter in all directions. Matthew's gospel says it really well when he says, then all the disciples deserted him and fled. That was the last time all 12 disciples saw each other. Jesus dies the next afternoon, probably about three o'clock. And except for Peter, who kind of weaves in and out of the crowds, and John, who was with Jesus at the crucifixion, the disciples are nowhere to be found. Saturday, they're in hiding. They're likely afraid for their lives. As best friends of someone who's been recently deemed an insurrectionist and a political enemy of the state, they're likely to be implicated for spreading the same radical ideology as their leader. Saturday is a long day, a fearful day. But then something happens, right? Sunday. John 20 starts out like this. Join me in verse 1. John 20, verse 1. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one who Jesus loved, that's John's way of referring to himself, and said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. little humble brag there from John. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. 
Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, we get it, John, also went in, and he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. And these guys don't know what to think. John even admits his own confusion at the end there. Did you get it? At least he's self-effacing enough to admit that. That we didn't understand. We had no idea what was going on. So Peter and John send out word to the remaining disciples to meet somewhere quietly where they can think. Now it's Sunday night. No one's seen Jesus except Mary. It's Sunday night, a quiet night. The disciples are confused. They're probably feeling very desperate. It's easy to imagine what they're thinking, right? 48 hours earlier, they were having a meal with their friend, with their rabbi, with their leader, with their brother. And now with Jesus out of the picture, his body likely taken by grave robbers, they've become spiritual refugees without a leader, without a home, without a mission. They are stuck. The only question they're asking, like any refugee would, is how do I get out of here without being noticed? It's been a great last few years, Jesus. Thank you, thank you, thank you. But Jesus is out of the picture, and we've got to get out of Jerusalem or else we're dead. You can almost imagine Peter, right? I like Peter. Peter's always thinking with his mouth open, you know? I get that guy. And he's probably taking it personal because it's Peter going, Jesus, come on. I thought I had an identity. I thought I had a destiny and a mission and a purpose. I was reading all of the cues. Everything was clear to me. I left my nets to follow you, and now you've left us all alone. What's going on? These men don't need an assignment. They need an identity, and they get both. Skip down to verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came in and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. So Jesus' first word to these guys is peace, which he has said before, often at like the craziest times, Right? During, the, during their time up in the upper room, just two days before, he said, the world's going to hate you, I'm going to leave you. Oh, but peace, it's okay, peace. It's the same word that the angels said announcing his birth, right? Goodwill, peace to these stunned shepherds. It's worth noting that that word for peace in those instances is not the same word for peace that means the absence of activity or like stillness or tranquility, like a, like a nice still lake. It's not that. That's a different Greek word. This word means confidence when you'd rather lie down or withdraw or hide your head in the sand or run away or quit. Do you ever feel like that? But the fact that he says peace once isn't the strangest thing about what, what happens here. The strangest thing is about what, what, what's coming next. Peace, peace be with you is kind of like a standard cultural greeting, like a handshake or a hug or a high five. Everybody said that, peace be with you, peace be with you. What's strange is what happens next. Verse 20. He says, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then his disciples were glad when they saw that it was the Lord. 
that Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. So he says, peace be with you. He shows them his hands and his side. And then he says, peace be with you again. It's likely that Jesus showed them his hands and his side because he wanted them to believe that it was really him. They all knew he'd been crucified. And wounds in the first century, wounds were often used to substantiate evidence in murder cases, just like like a murder case would be today. And so Jesus says, look, right here, it's me, guys, it's me. But I think something else is going on. I think Jesus isn't just showing them the proof of his resurrection. He's preparing them to live in the power of his resurrection. Because these guys are afraid. I remember a few years ago, we took our oldest son, Joseph, to preschool. How many of you have ever dropped a child off at preschool? Yeah? Yeah, you're laughing. That's the most paralyzing feeling in the world. Our oldest son, Joseph, he's 10 now. We drop him off at preschool, and he has been so excited. And we've been excited. You remember what that's like? You get them all dressed up. You know, got their new school clothes on. You make sure their hair's looking good. Brush his teeth a little extra. He even got a Buzz Lightyear lunchbox. And he's been bragging over his brother and his sister. He's like, I'm a big kid going to school. That's right. We've been talking about it for weeks. I remember standing in the doorway of Mrs. Pierce's preschool classroom that first day. The room smelled like a mix between crayon wax and Pepperidge Farm goldfish. And we looked in there and we're like, here are all these kids and these are going to be Joseph's little buddies. How cool. And then I looked down at Joseph and he looked up at me and these little tears started to form in these little blue eyes. With all the courage and, must, all the courage and, and strength he could muster, he looked up at me and goes, I don't want to go to school anymore. <laughs> and so we knelt down in front of him and we held his hand and we said, Joseph, buddy, you got this, man. You can do it. You've been excited. All of that excitement, right, over the last couple of weeks, all of that excitement, school clothes, going shopping, buzz like your lunchbox, it all fades in the face of fear, a very real fear for a four-year-old. When all of our security is pulled away, fear can disorient us, upsetting any inkling of peace. Sandwiched in the middle of Jesus' declarations for peace is the idea why peace is warranted. This is the best part about this. Just like parables and miracles from their last three years together, Jesus is digging deep to trying to get these guys to wrap their heads around what he's really saying. He's not talking here. He's teaching. Only this time, the object object lesson is not a coin or a loaf of bread or a fish or a storm. The object lesson is himself. Do you get that? He says, peace be with you. Look, look, it's me right here. Look at my wounds. He shows them his wounds. As if to say, everything that I'm going to ask you to do, you need to remember this. Look at my hands. Look at my side. Look at me. Empowered activity for Christ rests on abiding intimacy with Christ. And the Apostle Paul got that, right? When Paul says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. Why did he say that? Because he knows, I don't ever want to become too far tethered from this deep abiding gospel presentation that is the person of the risen Christ. That's Paul. 
He got that. Paul's saying, I need to know this. And the disciples saying, oh, we get this because we want to make a difference in this sick, stuck world. So fast forward. June 5th, right, 2016. Here we are. I think that intimacy with Christ is so important because that intimacy counteracts my own impulse to do the work of Christ on my own. I really think I can do it. I really think that, you know, I've been walking with Jesus for a while. You have too. You know, we're doing really good at doing church. But we can get so good at it that we don't need Jesus anymore. You ever been in that place? It's a horrible place, and it feels sick because it feels numb. We are not the source of our own identity. The truest thing about me is not that I am Brandon Marshall, son, Brandon Marshall, father, Brandon Marshall, husband, Brandon Marshall, pastor, is that I am Brandon Marshall, adopted child of the living God. That is the truest thing about me. None of that started with me. That is all from Christ. Think about how that just changes the way we think about church. Because then the church, the church isn't an, in, in like an industry anymore, right? When we say, well, just bring them in, give them some great stuff, make sure the kids don't wreck up their lives, perpetuate the faith, right? So we'll say things like, well, come to our thing, join our thing, let's get bigger. But the church is not an invitation to extend, is it? Or it's not a place to go. The church is a people to become and a posture to take. And so it says things like, let's do that. Let's follow Jesus. Let's live our lives by open and vulnerable obedience rather than just attendance. And that's a very freeing thing. It's a scary thing. But it gets better. Look at verse 21. Peace be with you, he says again. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Now, in Jewish custom, prophets and rabbis, both of which Jesus was, would handpick their own successor. We see that with Elijah choosing Elisha in the Old Testament. You see it with Gamaliel, who schooled Saul, who eventually became Paul, in the New Testament. This was a big cultural, theological deal when, when a rabbi or a prophet would choose the person who would follow them because it meant that God's authority now rested on a new teacher. This is a big deal. The only trouble is, at the time of the crucifixion, Jesus hadn't done that yet. Even here, he hadn't done that yet. And so the disciples are probably going, oh, good, Jesus is alive. It's you. We don't quite get the walking through the wall bit. We'll figure that out. But it's, it's, it's good that you're alive, Jesus. Cool. So are you still our rabbi or, or what? Like, what, what's going on? And then he says, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Whoa, 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 whoa. Surely he's overstating that a bit, isn't he? I mean, as the Father has sent him, he left eternal glory and perfect fellowship with God the Father to be wrapped in human flesh, fully God, fully man, to die a death that he, he didn't deserve, to give me something I could never earn on my own. And that is the, the paradigm for how you want me to live my life. And he entrusted that message to fishermen and zealots and tax collectors and messed up broken people like you and me. Really, Jesus? That's the, that's the plan here? You know what you're doing? 
Well, surely he does. Because we have to stay close to him. And if we don't, then all of our lives and all of our ministry just becomes static and white noise in a very busy world. We'll be very busy, but we'll never be effective. Just as the son's life was marked by constant intimacy with the father, so our lives need to be marked by constant intimacy with the son. Do you see how Jesus does that again here? Empowered activity for Christ rests rests on abiding intimacy with Christ. Now, if that freaks you out, that you are now responsible, it gets gets better. It's okay. Look at verse 22. Verse 22. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. So like Jesus in my heart, right? Receive the Holy Spirit, like Jesus in my heart, right? Think about how these guys would have heard that. These guys are God-fearing, Hebrew-schooled, first-century Jewish men. They were well-versed in the creation story where God's spirit hovers over the waters and God breathed life into Adam. They knew the story of the Exodus where God's spirit came down on a pillar of fire and held back the sea. They knew Ezekiel's vision of when God breathed on dry bones and they came to life. Just like God's breath in Adam gave him life, God's breath on these men gives them a mission. That is huge. You want to talk about identity shaping. Holy cow. (laughs) These guys would have got it right down to their shoes, sandals, whatever. Jesus redefines discipleship for this group of confused, frustrated, disoriented fishermen. Because discipleship isn't just about following Jesus around Israel, listening to him teach. Discipleship is about living life in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now stop for a second. Let that sink in. The Bible says that if you are a believer, the Holy Spirit lives in you. That means that you and I get up every morning, we live our days, we put our head on the pillow, our pillow at night with something that these guys would have found unbelievable. The power of the Holy Spirit, that same God lives in you. The only way to give spiritually awkward people like you and me any kind of confidence in this world is to give us the Holy Spirit. That's what it means to find our identity. We are sent, but there are some implications for being sent. And in our last couple of minutes this morning, I want to share four. Four implications for being sent. Here's the first implication. Being sent means that relationships matter. Being sent means that relationships matter. If it's true that being a disciple of Jesus says that I am sent, I must me- it must mean that I am sent somewhere or to someone or, or a group of someones. And that's absolutely true. We belong some place. We are sent. So most of you guys know that we just moved here. It was a week, or a month ago last week. Crazy. And, and for a while, we've been praying about a house, right? Because that's, you got to have that, sort of, yeah. So we've been praying, like, God, would you just show us a house? God, show us the right house. We know you have something for us lined up. We just need to find it. And we'd pray those kind of prayers, and that was good. But God has used this last month to wreck our prayer life in an awesome way. 
we started to pray differently. We started to pray, God, would you show us where the people are that you need us to meet? Show us where our neighbors will be, and then the house thing is going to take care of itself. We, we trust you for that. And so I'm happy to say that a couple, well, yeah, end of last week, we made an offer on a house, and we got accepted. And so we're moving in. It's in Plain Local. It's at the corner of Market and Schneider. And so we're going to be doing our dinner dates at Starbucks in Washington Square, along with, like, the rest of Stark County, I think. Like, everybody goes to that one, right? We're going to be shopping at Giant Eagle. Our kids are going to be at Warsler and Glenwood, I think. Right, Brummy? Is that the right one? Yes. We're going to be there, and we're going to be having ice cream at, uh, what's the place? Hit there. Man. All right. Currently accepting gift cards. All right. That's the idea. But the point is, it's like we look at that and we're going, this isn't about what we live in. It's about where we live and who we live among. And these relationships that we're going to start matter deeply to us because we're disciples of Jesus. Similarly with you, you've been placed where you are, not so that you can occupy your house, but so that you can be a light in your neighborhood. And you know that. Relationships matter when you are a sent one, when you are someone who is sent. So for you, just a quick thing, get a piece of paper out when you go home and draw like a rough sketch of your neighborhood and draw like a box next to your house, a box on the other side, a box across the street, maybe a box behind you and write down your neighbor's names. Just write down their names and then write down one thing that you know spiritually about them and write down one way to bless them and then start praying for them. That might sound like a little kind of creepy neighbor thing going on there, but I think, this is me, in an age of increasing disconnection and anonymity, it's the least we can do to get to know the people that we share space with. First thing, relationships matter. Second thing, being sent means that our lives are marked by risk. In the Old Testament, God gave his Holy Spirit to individuals for a purpose. In the New Testament, God gives his Holy Spirit to the church for a lifestyle. And there is a profound difference. We've already said that the Holy Spirit indwells believers, reminding us of what Jesus said and wants us to do. And while that sentiment might initially seem really cute and quaint and comforting, we need to ask ourselves a question. Why would God the Father take such a drastic risk with God the Holy Spirit, unless he wanted us to do something we couldn't do on our own. God doesn't give his spirit indiscriminately. He gives the Holy Spirit for a deeply profound purpose because he wants his church to live in a way that our lives and our activity are dependent on him. Now, I don't think risk necessarily means going out to, to you know, a, a foreign country, hacking your way through, through jungles to deliver medical supplies to a tribal village. It may mean that, and for some of us in this room, it does mean that. But I think risk also means the courage to have a spiritual conversation with your neighbor. Or maybe some of you, you look at that and you go, well, I'm okay with those spiritual conversations with my neighbor, but... You know, I, I, I kind of like this 20-year-old grudge that I'm nursing with my family member. Do I have to give that up? Risk is relative for the life of a believer, but it is always present in the life of a believer. And so here's, here's my, my word for you on that. Ask God, open-handedly, to show you opportunities to stretch your limits. Say, God, I, I just want to do something risky. Show me what that is. For some of you, it's to go talk to the neighbor. For others, it's to make a phone call and have a really hard conversation that you've been putting off for a couple decades. Whatever that is, that's the place that you need to start living as an empowered disciple. Third implication. 
Being sent means that we live visible and vulnerable lives. Visible and vulnerable lives. When Jesus interrupted the disciples' quiet panic fest that evening, he was removing the possibility of invisible discipleship. Visibility asks, am I seeable? Do I live, work, eat, play where people can actually see me? Around people that God has put in my life for gospel purposes or am I sequestered in my own dibbling lit room trying to figure out what's going on? We don't carry flags. We don't wave banners. We don't you know, sound off bullhorns to announce our, our, our coming. What are Christians known for? By this, all men will know you're my disciples if you... Love one another, right? That means we're actively looking for ways to visibly and vulnerably love our communities. But vulnerability is a little bit different than visibility, I think. Vulnerability is a little harder. Where visibility asks, am I seeable? Vulnerability asks, am I knowable? And there's a difference. Vulnerability says it's not enough to be the nice family down the street who hosts barbecues and has kids over and we do a jump house and yada, yada, yada. Vulnerability says there is a deep need in the deepest parts of the human soul to be known. And as a Christian, I'm going to lead the way in being open and honest with my neighbors and the people around me. I believe that the world is waiting for Christians to showcase and to demonstrate what authentic, transformative relationships look like. They don't know it yet, but they re- that's what they really want. <laughs> they want you to be real. They want, us to un- they, they want us to show what's really going on in our hearts, characterized by abiding love for neighbor and an embeddedness in a community. I believe that what the world needs most today from Christians isn't smart Christians, gifted Christians, ris- rich Christians, or strategic Christians. What the world needs most today from Christians is vulnerable Christians who are courageous enough to be open about our own brokenness and secure enough to boast in his redemption. So just let me ask you, are you visible? Are you vulnerable? How do, you, how do people around you know you? Last implication. Here's the fourth one. Being sent means that our lives are marked by an enduring tension. An enduring tension. I think it's safe to say at this point, we need to acknowledge that discipleship is not cute and it's not quaint. Because sometimes, I'll be honest, I, I, I don't know what Jesus wants from me and I get frustrated by that sometimes. Because in one breath, the Bible says these great motivating things like be like a light on a hill, be like a city. Don't put your light under a bushel or hide it. Be like salt, flavor your world. Invite sinners in and, 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 and show them everything that you need. It says that and then on the other breath it says, Keep yourselves unstained by the world. Have nothing to do with immoral people. Blessed is the man who doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers. And you go, okay, what is that? Which one am I? Which one do you want me to do? Do you want me to, sep- you want to be a separatist or do you want me to engage? Where's the line between like missions and holiness, helping and hiding? And my answer is yes. Welcome to the tension of following Jesus. Because the tension between holiness and engagement is not a problem to solve, it is a tension to manage. And the only way to manage that tension is intimacy with Christ. It starts with understanding our natural inclination, too. So here's a little practical thing for you. I I, I really do think 
you're, you're probably either a, a natural engager or you're a natural separatist. And that's okay, either one. It's just kind of how we're wired or, or how we grew up or things like that. But a word to the separatists. We need to be careful that our preservation of self doesn't eclipse our love for neighbor. Because the end of that road is irrelevance at best and arrogance at worst. A word to the engagers. We need to be careful that we don't drift so far on the waves of culture that we lose sight of the shore, which is Christ. The end of the road there is accommodation, like James mentioned last week. And so it's attention. But whether you're a separatist or engager, it really doesn't matter because you can, you can see that you're starting to slip away when you're letting anything else determine your identity other than Jesus. John doesn't really tell us but wouldn't you love to know what went through these guys' heads when they heard all this from their risen rabbi? They're probably thinking, this just got really real, real quick. The band's going to come back on in just a minute. Um, but I've got one last piece I want to leave you with. And I think it's the summation of this whole text, this whole, this whole scene. And it's this. Don't wait for the church to empower you. Don't wait for permission. If you're a Christian in this room, you're already empowered by virtue of the Holy Spirit living inside of you. Don't wait for us to give you permission. Start to build those relationships and mend those bridges. That's what we're called to do. You are an adopted child of God living in this world in the name of his son and you are sent forth in the power of the Holy Spirit. The church exists to help you do what you've already been called to do. And that's the exciting thing, right? Seek the welfare of your city like we learned last week. Be present with people. These 10 men in this room turn their world on their head. There's way more than 10 people here. It is staggering to think what God could do. Absolutely staggering. We're all searching for our identity to some extent, whether we're awkward 13-year-olds or a little older. In the already not yetness of this world, it only makes sense to sink our roots deep in Christ as we engage. So let me pray for us, and then we'll, we'll close. God, we need you, and um, we know it, but we often forget it, too. We are scared deep down, and uh, it's hard to venture out. It's hard to make sense of this world. It's hard to know the right road to take, so we ask you for guidance as we lean on your spirit. We do say thank you for the gift of your spirit who makes sense of all of this. We thank you for your son, your resurrected, our risen king. It's in his name we pray. Amen.